not a chorus for frowning. <clears throat> we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Those who uh, bear the name Christian have professed to follow Jesus Christ as his disciples. And as such, they hold to a, a Christology, a, a doctrine of Christ, a, a, a teaching of who Jesus is that reflects their view of Christ. Sometimes their Christology is dead wrong, Sometimes it is even heretical. Sometimes it's implied and not explicit. Sometimes it is so detached from the revealed truth of the Bible that it ends up becoming essentially incoherent. But no professing Christian lacks a Christology. If you call yourself a Christian, you have a Christology. You have a doctrine of Christ. Throughout the centuries, Christians have worked to proclaim the truth of the doctrine of Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. They've done so through this, sermons preached in local churches throughout the centuries. They've done so through books written for general consumption, through creeds and confessions that have been memorized and recited regularly by Christians all over the world and all throughout the last 2,000 years. They've done so by parents catechizing their children, teaching their children the truth of Christ as revealed in the Bible. But we have come to the point in history, in, in modern evangelicalism, where we seem to be able to hold to a Christ of our own making, a Jesus who is a good moral teacher. And if we would just, if we would just ask him into our hearts, he will be able to save us from hell when we die, but he's certainly not someone who is hinged to the Old Testament. But that's not the way the Bible portrays Jesus. In fact, just in John chapter 5, which we've been studying for several weeks, Jesus is portrayed as having authority over disease or, or handicap, as having authority over the Sabbath, as being equal with God, as having authority to give life to whom he will, as having authority to judge the quick and the dead so that he may receive honor and worship. He's portrayed as being the Son of God and the Son of Man, the one of whom Daniel wrote, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Turn to John chapter 5. I want to read verses 31 through the end of the chapter. John 5.31 says, Jesus is continuing to speak here, and He says, If I alone bear witness about Myself, My testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about Me, and I know that the testimony that He bears about Me is true. You sent to John, and He has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's just stop and pray one more time. God, I pray that you would give us um, ears to hear. Help us to understand Jesus' words here. And not just to understand them, but to believe them, to trust in them, to be warned by them, and to worship him because of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have to remember as we approach this passage uh, that the context of Jesus' words here are in response to the, to the Jewish leadership up in verse 18, which said this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then really from verse 19, the very next verse, all the way through the end of the chapter, Jesus establishes his equality with God. And he begins by stressing in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Remember, Jesus has just healed, on the Sabbath day, no less. He has healed a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. Then He told the man to take up his bed and walk, which was a violation of what was known as the traditions of the elders. It was not a violation of God's law. It was a violation of their law about God's law. Jesus says again in verse 30 the same thing. I can do nothing on my own. And in saying these things, really what he is doing is is emphasizing the unity that he has with his Father. And their, if I could put it this way, their not independentness in their relationship. 
In other words, he's not dependent on his father in the same way that children are dependent upon parents. But he is also not independent from his father either. They are not independent. Jesus was perfectly submissive and obedient. And the father has given him all authority. Here specifically, he says that he has been given the authority to give life to whom he will, and also the authority to execute judgment. And we know that at the end of Matthew's gospel, we can see that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. All through this passage, Jesus is testifying over and over again to his identity. He's answering the, the Jewish charge that he, uh, that he has made himself equal with God, they said in verse 18. And his, his answer is essentially this. He says, I haven't made myself equal with God. I am equal with God. If anything, it is, it is God who has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus continues his testimony here, and he does so by stating that, that his own testimony is not independent of that of, of his four witnesses. So we will look at these four witnesses here in a moment. But first, look at what he says in verses 31 and 32. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, that word true here in these two verses... It's translated that way in most versions, and it's, it's almost unfortunate. And I say almost because it's what it literally means. It means true. These are the words that Jesus used, but it doesn't mean that Jesus spoke untrue things about himself. So again, verse 31 says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that he spoke untrue things. He's using legal language. Remember, he is, he is addressing, verse 18 tells us, really the whole passage context tells us, he is addressing the Jewish religious leaders about whether or not he broke the law, the Sabbath law specifically. Or, or really, he's addressing them about his own relationship to the law. If he is equal with God, then that would make him the lawgiver. So when we read verse 31, we should understand it like this. Essentially, what he is saying is, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not ruled true or deemed true or determined in court to be true. He needs further witnesses, he says. This is an acknowledgement. Interestingly, it's the same line of thinking that the Bereans took in Acts chapter 17 who received the word with all eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't believe just simply because Paul told them or because they, they read it in a Facebook meme. They applied the principles of the law, which says in places like Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And they took what they had heard back to the most reliable witness that they had the scriptures. 
Jesus here is essentially saying the same thing. Don't believe me just because I tell you that this is true. Now, I want to be really clear here. Jesus is not telling people to disbelieve everything he says until you can find proof elsewhere. That's not what he's saying. Jesus here is establishing his identity. The Pharisees understood this. That's verse 18. Once his identity is established, once you understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you can believe every word that he says. We can know that what he says is true. And it's even verified in the scriptures. But apply this same principle here in this church. Don't just take everything that is said from this pulpit as truth. No matter who is preaching, me or anyone else. Receive the word with all eagerness and then examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. So Jesus' claims here in John chapter 5, they're big claims. They're claims that would change the way the, essentially, the lawyers standing in front of him, the experts in God's law, it would change the way that they would view the scriptures. He's saying to them that he understands that that he just can't claim to be the Messiah without something to back up his claims. He needs a witness. In fact, he will later prove his own point by warning in Matthew chapter 24 verse 5 he said he says for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray lots of people are going to come up and say that they're the Messiah I need to provide you with a witness he says Jesus is telling them that the if the burden of proof to support his incredible claims these claims that he was making if it rested solely on his own testimony concerning himself then his own witness should be regarded as not true. How could they think otherwise, based on all that is said in Scripture? I keep saying that Christianity is, at its core, a truth claim. Christianity is not an experience. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a culture. It is first and foremost a truth claim. Those other things flow out of that. It's a claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we, as Christians, we must, as Jesus does here, and as as Peter will say, we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. And here in John chapter 5, he's already said that, really in the strongest of terms, He's already said that that all that he says and does, including his witness of himself, is nothing more than a reflection of his perfect obedience to his Father. He says and does only what the Father wants him to say and do. His witness is not simply his witness. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Remember, Jesus is not independent of the Father. Notice that he says here that he knows the Father's testimony to be true. Ultimately, it is is only the testimony of God that matters, right? It is only God's testimony about Jesus that matters. If we want to be technical and theological here, all of the subsequent witnesses that he's going to appeal to, all of them have been given to us by God. 
God himself provided us with these four witnesses that testify to Christ's claims. This is a key to John's gospel. John the Apostle makes these big claims about Jesus. And then he offers proof to back them up. He says as much at the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Proof to back it up, to back up these claims. The first witness that Jesus gives us is John the Baptist. So, so pick it up here in verse 33. Jesus says to these Pharisees, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. <clears throat> we already saw back in the introduction of this gospel uh, that John was sent by God. So chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this, right in the very beginning of the book. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So right off the bat, we can see God's hands on this witness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. But here Jesus says, You sent to John. There in verse 33, you sent to John. The Jews understood that John, John the Baptist, was someone special, which is why they had sent a delegation to investigate him. Just turn back a couple of pages to chapter 1. If you remember this, we were here a while ago. This is what Jesus is talking about here when he says, you sent to John. Verse 19 of John chapter 1, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. But they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he whose sandal, or who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the fact that uh, Jesus mentions John first and even John the Apostle, the other John, as he's writing this gospel, he also tells us of, of John the Baptist's unique ministry before, before even really fully introducing Jesus. This points to the significance of John's testimony. In fact, at the close of the Old Testament, the final verses of the Old Testament, the final verses of the book of Malachi say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John the Baptist is this Elijah. John is important. And just like Jesus, he also wasn't fooled by the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he says of, of this delegation that went out to see him, we read this. So Matthew chapter 3, in those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he of whom was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's testimony, his witness was of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. This is the same message that Jesus proclaimed. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read this. Now after John was arrested, that is John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message was the same as John's. Now Jesus isn't who he says he is simply because John says so. John's testimony did help to confirm that Jesus' claims were true, and he helped some of them for a while, but the sad reality is, as verse 35 says, they were enamored with him for just a little while. Yet however valuable John's, John the Baptist's ministry and his testimony of Christ was, Jesus also has another really far stronger testimony. This is his second witness, and these are his own works. We pick it up in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is far greater than John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So far in John's gospel, uh, we've seen three public miraculous signs that Jesus has performed that testify to his divinity, that testify that he is the Son of God. He turned water into wine in chapter 2. He healed the official son in chapter 4. And at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, he healed a man who had been uh, crippled, handicapped, and invalid for 38 years. But he also did quite a few other kind of less public, more subtle miracles that also lead people to believe his claims. So back in chapter 1, verses 48 and 49, we read this. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That statement, I saw you, caused Nathanael to believe. In chapter 2, he prophesied of his own death and resurrection. Verse 19, he's talking about the temple, and Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But then in verse 22, we read this, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They understood that he was talking about his own death. Then, of course, we read of his conversation with the Samaritan woman, in chapter 4, 
Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. All of these, many other works, bear witness about him that the Father sent him. But the works of Jesus, the works that he is talking about here in verse 36, they're not, they're not limited to being just signs and wonders. It's not limited to the miraculous, although they certainly did include them. When Jesus talks about his works, he's talking about everything that he's doing, all of the work that he is doing, from, from choosing the twelve, making them disciples who will then entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, to his, to his preaching, which is a key aspect of his work. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 38 says, Jesus responds to Peter. Peter asks him to come back out. The crowds, they want to see more miracles. And Jesus says, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. Of course, Jesus worked at observing the law, including the feasts and the festivals, which is why, according to the very first verse of this chapter. It's why they're in Jerusalem again to begin with. But all of his works, it all leads up to his climactic work, the work of redemption achieved in the crucifixion and exaltation of the true Lamb of God. That's the ultimate work of Christ. Jesus here is continuing the teaching that he began in the previous verses, which is essentially this. All that Jesus does, everything that he does is nothing more than what the Father gives him to do. The works that Jesus does testify to him because the works that he does are the works of God. The works that Jesus does testify to him because the works that he does are the works of God. This, of course, brings us to the third witness. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is a damning couple of verses. This is a damning couple of verses. These verses had to have gotten under the skin of the Jews. They had to be... This statement, these words that he says in these two verses... They have to be at least part of the reason that they were seeking all the more to kill him. And and look, in reality, these are all witnesses of the Father, who is actually Jesus' greatest witness. John the Baptist was sent by God. The works that Jesus was doing here were really the Father's works. And then even later, when we look at the fourth witness, which is the Scriptures, they were also given by God. God the Father is Jesus' greatest witness. And look at what Jesus says about this. Again, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The witness of the Father is intimately connected with the Son. But that does not mean that they cannot serve as as independent witnesses. So the Father who sent the Son has also testified about the Son. But look at what Jesus says. 
He says you've never heard him, you never saw him, and you never believed in him. What's he talking about? What is Jesus talking about when he says this to the Pharisees? Is he referring to an event where the Jews didn't see him, didn't hear him, didn't believe in him? Some would argue that maybe he's talking about his baptism here. Matthew says that the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But the perfect tense of the verbs here in these two verses really suggests that the Father's testimony of the Son is both past and present. In other words, yes, this is about his baptism, but it's also about every other time the Father bore witness of the Son. Jesus is insinuating here that the Father is constantly, consistently bearing witness of the Son. And he does so by issuing this indictment. So the first thing he says in indicting them is this, His voice you have never heard. They were not like Abraham, who heard the voice of the Lord as the Lord spoke to him. The scripture testifies of Abraham. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. They were also, they were not like Moses, who heard the voice of the Lord. And Exodus 33 tells us, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Think of the irony in this statement. His voice you have never heard, Jesus said. Jesus actually speaks the words of God. John 3.34 tells us that very explicitly. But the Jews don't hear God's voice in Jesus. It's because they were not listening. They were living Ezekiel 12, verse 2, which says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. (coughs) When I pray that we would have ears to hear, I pray that often in our church. When I pray that we would have ears to hear, I pray that this would not be us that Jesus would not say of us, His voice you have never heard. The second indictment that He lays out is just as bad. He says, His form you have never seen. They were not like Isaac, who saw and was blessed by God. Genesis 26, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. They were not like Isaac. They were not like Jacob who saw and even wrestled with God. Genesis 32, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The Jews look at Jesus and they don't recognize God. 
John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. They look at Jesus and they don't recognize God. The third indictment is even worse. He says, and you do not have His word abiding in you. These were the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the experts in God's word. And Jesus says, you do not have God's word abiding in you. They were not like Joshua, who was promised in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They were not like Joshua. They were not like the psalmist. Psalm 119.11 Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Since Jesus is the very word of God, John 1.1 says, since they have rejected him, it naturally follows that, that they will not share in the experiences. They will not share in the blessings that we have in Scripture. Those blessings from those promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua and the psalmist. Do you see what Jesus has done in the court here? This sort of informal trial? They're essentially putting him on trial. Verse 18 says that they've already jumped to conclusions. They've already condemned him. They're seeking all the more to kill him. And Jesus, in defending himself and laying out witnesses to support his case, he indicts them on three counts. God had spoken to their fathers. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But all of the prophets had been anticipating, verse 2, Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the incarnate word the revealed, who revealed God, and yet they rejected him. And because they rejected him, he says in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This, of course, brings us to the fourth and final witness, which is the scriptures. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jump down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They knew, they knew where to look, but they didn't know what to look for. They were searching the scriptures, but they were missing what they were supposed to look for. These these Bible scholars, they studied the scriptures. They taught others the scriptures. They made it their life's work, yet they did so in an effort to find eternal life. And that seems like a noble goal at first, right? To find eternal life. Search the scriptures. Of course, that's what we say. But they should have been searching the scriptures to find Christ. 
They were searching the scriptures to find their own eternal life. It may seem like a kind of a nitpicky distinction, but the scriptures are not given first and foremost that you may have eternal life. The scriptures are not about you. They're not about me. They're about Christ. He says, it is they that bear witness about me. Eternal life comes from trusting in Christ, seeing Christ in the scriptures. On the road to Emmaus, sometime following the resurrection, he bumps into, Jesus bumps into two unidentified disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24, 27. It's only through Christ that we may have eternal life. Yet they rejected Christ, and instead they placed their hope in their own ability to keep the law. That's why he tells them that Moses, the law, will accuse them. In other words, they will be judged based on how well they kept the law. But of course, if you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, as he explained in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We're to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Which brings us right back to the the beginning of his argument, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. Including perfect law-keeping. Jesus is saying that, that Moses points to Christ. And in rejecting Christ, they're condemning themselves because they're proving that they don't believe Moses' writings. They do not believe the scriptures, the, the laws that they are right here trying so hard to enforce. They're, they're trying so hard to enforce this Sabbath law. And they don't even believe it themselves. But did you notice in this passage who is not bearing witness about Christ? people. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Specifically, he is talking about these people, his own people, First chapter, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They do not glorify Christ, yet they're quick to receive glory from one another. They actually love darkness rather than light. They do not love, have the love of God within them. Later in life, John will write a letter to kind of help explain this, this idea of loving God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 says this. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I just want to point out here that while he says these things here, he has a witness in John the Baptist. He has a witness in his works. He has a witness in his father. He has a witness in the scriptures, but not in people. Verse 41 says that. I do not receive glory from people. Even though he says these things to the Jewish leadership who is seeking all the more to kill him, this is what he says to his disciples later. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ is not left without a witness. In verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. May that never be said of us. He was saying that about his own people standing in front of him, those who who have rejected him, who were going to reject him no matter what he could say. He was not receiving glory from those people. But may that never be said about us. We confess the mystery and wonder of God-made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary, lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building His church, interceding for us, reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise His holy name forever. Amen. Let's pray. The biggest question, Lord, in all of eternity is who is Jesus? And we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that. Help us to live like we believe that, Lord. Without doubt, without fear, trusting in the Christ who has redeemed us to be a people for his own possession. People who are marked by love for one another because of your love for us because of the great love with which you loved us. Change our hearts, Lord, as we understand who Christ is. Change our hearts, transform our minds. Make us people who love you and one another and so fulfill the law. We pray these things in Jesus' name.